Six years old now, 24 Hours in Farming gets bigger and better and closer. It's just a couple of weeks away. What is it though? Just to really showcase and give a snapshot of what farming is about on your farm or if you're in a related industry to agriculture. Ben Briggs, editor of Farmer's Guardian, tells us all about it shortly and we'll have a good look at the Dimbleby Food Strategy Report and find out if it's all meat bad, plant good. You can oversimplify things to meat bad, plant good and the reality is it doesn't draw distinctions between different production systems. Plus, of course, agronomy, the grain markets and the week's weather. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning. Hope it's been a good week for you. Following recent votes to abolish the statutory levy in the horticulture and potato sectors, the AHDB has announced some serious job cuts and other planned savings to their budget of nearly £8 million by March next year. There is to be a second series of Clarkson's Farm. The horse's mouth has tweeted, but didn't give a date for a return to diddly squat. And this year's breeding sheep sale season approaches. This summer and autumn's ram sales will be back in full, including the Eastern Region sale at Rugby on the 27th of August. Now, did you go to the Great Yorkshire Show? Another excellent event and great to see so many smiling faces enjoying the return of the country show. Did you have a look at the new John Deere machine, the largest combine in the world? My best Jeremy Clarkson imitation. Big, isn't it? I had a chat with Richard Simpson from Ripon Farm Services. Richard, what have we got here? It's the uh, largest capacity combine in the world, uh, John Deere X9 1100. 700 horsepower, 13 and a bit litre engine, threshes about 100 tonnes an hour and John Deere naturally very conservative so when we were doing trials with it last year we were up to 130 tonnes an hour so it's, it, it's pretty effective. And it's making its debut at the show, is it new to the country then? Uh, yeah, well it, it, it was on demo last year uh, and I think the, the, there were 12 sold in the UK last year. A very conservative launch uh, by John Deere, so this, this, this year we're, we've got nine demos lined up. And, I mean, it is a huge beast. There must be some restriction on the kind of fields that you can get this into or the number of acres that make it worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's like anything, there's machines for every occasion, isn't there? So this is particularly designed for the large-scale uh, farmers, um, probably 3,000 plus acres. There's two models in this range. So there's 1,100, which is uh, 700 horsepower, uh, and then there's the 1,000, which is 639, and you'd probably want to put a 40-foot header on that. This is the 45-foot header on this one. Um, so so there's, a, there's a bit of scope, but it's specifically designed with the sort of conditions we get in, in the eastern seaboard of the UK. So, you know, heavy crops, uh, green straw, etc. It goes really well in that. That's, that's what it's been designed for. The ideal in Lincolnshire then? Absolutely. That's exactly right, and that's where this one's going. So. All right, Richard. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll get a farmer's view on the big beast next Sunday. Oh, and in case you're wondering, around £650,000. Open Farm Sunday was a successful, if inevitably smaller, affair this year, but we have another opportunity to connect with the public and promote British farming in a couple of weeks. 24 Hours in Farming, or Farm 24, is organised by the Farmer's Guardian and well supported by Morrisons. Ben Briggs is the editor of Farmer's Guardian. Ben, it's the sixth year and it seems to keep getting bigger and better. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. It started as this kind of small event that we hope would take off. It's really become the biggest social media event in the calendar for agriculture you know in excess of uh, 120 million twitter impressions year on year what's actually involved in farm 24 
for those who've not been involved in it in the past, you know, what actually happens? It's just about using hashtag 424 on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, just to really showcase and give a snapshot of what farming is about on your farm or if you're in a related industry to agriculture. So it starts at 5am on August the 5th. So it, it might start with somebody milking. It's just that kind of the minutiae of life on farm that I don't think people out there always get to see. Uh, and I think it's really, really important that, that we kind of highlight what agriculture is about. I mean, things have changed. You know, we have huge influences on social media now, um, such as uh, Jeremy Clarkson or Amanda Rowan or all these different kind of people. But it's actually bringing that together for a 24-hour period and just really shouting about what agriculture has to offer. So you want videos, you want photos, you want stories being uploaded, yeah? Yeah, yeah, videos, um, you know, photos of, of your day. It doesn't have to be about people doing remarkable things. It can be sometimes the mundane job. It can be sometimes the things that, that maybe the wider public doesn't see. And as I said, like, you know, over the past few years, on Twitter alone, we've had in excess of 120 million impressions on that social media platform. So it's about showcasing what agriculture is about and, you know, the, the way that video, I think this is one of the really interesting things over the six years, you know, the way that video has taken off online now compared to six years ago is absolutely remarkable. And the fact that 24 hours of informing continues to be that kind of real focal point in the year, I think is testament to the initiative and, and how it's grown. And what's Morrison's involvement in all this? Morrison's really have built a brand and an image around supporting uh, British farming. They're one of the only, uh, if not the only, supermarket to, to have like their own abattoirs and, and some of their own dedicated supply chains. So there was an actual synergy between Farmers Guardian and Morrison's really on this initiative, and 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 they've they've sought to to come on board with it. And and over the years, and they'll be doing it again this year. You know, they're going to have demonstrations in store of, of local food producers. Ben, where can we find out more information about Farm Twenty Four? You can go to twenty four hoursinfarmingcom or search the hashtag Farm Twenty Four on social media platforms. All right, Ben. Thanks for joining us on the farming program again, and good luck with Farm Twenty Four. That's my pleasure, Steve. No problem. Now, with some timely agronomy advice from Sean Sparling. You're feeling hot, hot, hot and getting closer to your holiday. Morning, Sean. Yeah, very good morning to you, Steve. Yeah, agronomy, that's shorter and sweeter by the week now as I hurtle towards my holidays. Harvest underway. A week of 28 degree plus temperatures, up to 32 a couple of times actually with me in the early part of this week and very, very little rain. Unless, of course, you caught one of those very localised thunderstorms on Tuesday tea time around the Sleaford area. It's been a very dry one for me too. I haven't seen any of that rain. And that means the barleys and the oilseed rate rush towards the finish line in record time thanks to that heat. Winter barley seems to be running okay in the bits which have already been cut. Obviously, they're not going to be the best pieces, these early ones. It's hard to get a picture of harvest. but And it's also hard to tell how they've done until the greens from the grass weed and the volunteer wheat and the late tillers have shriveled up and gone. But good-looking samples in the main and pleasing numbers of trailers leaving the fields, I'm being told, so fingers crossed. Still very early days and decisions made 10 days ago not to pre-harvest treat with glyphosate due to the 
apparent proximity of harvest are already being regretted in some sites. I've regretted one or two of those decisions um, where ryegrass was worse than I originally thought. But like any situation, there are only two decisions you can take. The best decision, which is the right one, and the next best decision, which is the wrong one. And next best decisions are so close to being the best ones, but we suck it up and we move on. All seed rape harvest has well got underway in the mid part of the week for me, with pre-harvest glyphosate still to go on as well on some of these later pieces. Those outstanding crops have turned very, very quickly in the heat of the last few days, just as we said they would. So with seeds in the middle pods going from green to brown in just a couple of days, much of that outstanding pre-harvest glyphosate has now been completed. The first ideas of yield seem to show somewhere around about 3.75 to 4 tonnes per hectare on the early cut good stuff, but clearly there will be a lot of variation in that. Clearly those 25 hard frosts throughout April and the subsequent flowering issues will play a key role going forward. Cabbage stem flea beetle adults as well being reported as being present in trailers and on grain store floors, but as yet nothing like the levels we witnessed a couple of years ago, but they are about and you need to bear that in mind so watch this space really is the best advice easy to find verticillium wilt as well out there in the all-seed rape and it has been for the last month six weeks or so where racines have bleached and gone gray or white and again it's a weather thing and a seasonal thing but nothing chemically we can do about that particular issue and a much higher incidence of club root than i think i've ever seen so be aware of that too and manage it with rotation and variety choice if you can and also check the ph of these club rooty areas because acid can make it the problem a lot worse um, and remember that if you're going to put oilseed rape in after this cut winter barley because you think you need to get it in relatively early to get it away make sure there's some rain on the horizon for goodness sake don't put it into a bone dry seedbed and a squirt of glyphosate particularly if you're direct drilling um, it might not be the worst idea particularly of course if you did a next best decision on the pre-harvest glyphosate uh, timing fusarium root rots as well really showing up now in beans in particular and we're seeing blackened and stunted roots stem base blackening as well earlier wet feet and compaction won't have helped um, there are two fusarium species that affect beans fusarium culmorum and fusarium solani culmorum obviously shared with wheat and cereals and grass weeds and solani with potatoes black nightshade and other solani ac but the there's very little we can do for that other than ensure that compaction free and well-drained fields for beans are employed going forward peas similarly showing fusarium foot rots in the wetter areas of the fields on the headland overlaps etc after that heat of the last week it's really kicked it off and really moved those symptoms forward pre-harvest treatment you know not ready to go yet on my peas and beans way too early at the moment uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week sugar beet no sacosporitis report out there in the field remember some varieties are worse than others from what we saw last year accidentally in the trial at bracebridge heath by the sounds of it so have a look in your bbro guide but bts19 915 Daphna Cantonar they seemed less severe than the smart varieties and Sabatina and Sancha which in their own right were less severe than Conger and Vixen which were some of the worst ones but it's all a little bit irrelevant in some respects because the tools we have available to control it are so limited but that first fungicide will want to go on at the first signs of disease whether that be rust or mildew so as yet again no need to be charging out with a fungicide on sugar beet I am seeing 
seeing some bacterial leaf spot though in some of the sugar beet as a result of that cold wet weather a couple of weeks ago I think mostly in the earlier drill pieces there's nothing you can do about that um, you know it's not yield threatening it doesn't bother the crop and you can't do anything about it anyway so don't waste your time and money but do make sure you know what it looks like so that you don't inadvertently spend thinking that it's something completely different I'm seeing no virus by the way out there as yet he said touching wood um, and with temperatures back to the low 20s again next week cereal crops will continue then to ripen rather than burn up and die on their feet so I'm quite hopeful and bullish about what I'm seeing in the field how well some of these crops look how well they're hanging on and I think there's a potential for a reasonable harvest I really hope I don't come to regret that but it won't be anything I've said if it isn't so let's see what the next seven days bring Thank you, Sean. Restaurateur and cookery writer and the latest in the broadcasting dynasty, Henry Dimbleby, has produced his report and recommendations in the National Food Strategy for England document. Lots of recommendations, 16 pages just of recommendations. And many headlines have been in the media around sugar and salt taxes and a 30% cut in meat consumption. Stuart Roberts, Deputy President of the NFU, you've taken a good look at the report for us. Is it all meat, bad, plant good? The reality is, I think, when it comes to the meat bit, I, I do think Henry missed uh, a very large point. You can oversimplify things to meat bad, plant good. And the reality is, it doesn't draw distinctions between different production systems. So the fact that in the UK we have some of the most sustainable uh, red meat in the world, the fact that the carbon footprint of our beef is at least 50% lower than the global average, unfortunately those things were missed. And I think as we go forward, it will be much more about what were the production systems used to produce meat. And I actually see opportunities there for, for British farmers and growers, as well as the, the opportunities in the fruit and veg sector, which he highlights quite loudly. What sort of opportunities are you thinking of? Well, for starters, as consumers, uh, and not just here in, in the UK, but as consumers all around the world become more conscious about the environmental impact of their foods then actually if you want to choose red meat regardless of where you are in the world actually British red meat is the one you should be looking to choose you know with that uh, there is no more climate friendly uh, red meat in the world than, than we produce here in Britain um, so I see opportunities both at here uh, and abroad for actually pushing that one of the, the worries I have in this debate is people mix up consumption and production and look how people consume red meat in the UK will be up to consumers when we will see what happens with that but that doesn't mean we need to see a reduction in production I actually see opportunities for increasing production as more people are aware of the production standards that sit behind products as they look at the carbon footprint of those products then actually British beef, British lamb uh, really ought to be taking a larger share uh, of the world's meat production. Maybe we've still almost got a marketing job and a promotion job still to do on British produce. What better story is there to tell? You and I saw some of that up at the, the Yorkshire show last week. And we need to tell that story. And it's not helped, unfortunately, by the media in particular. And apologies to your profession. <laughs> um, but also Henry has done this a little bit by not drawing distinctions between different types of production. They simply uh, basket all meat production as one. And we know it's different. We know that 
the amount of resources needed to produce different products is different. We know the difference between taking cellulose and using the rumen and predominantly grass-fed production, which we've got in this country, has very different credentials to, to that produced elsewhere in the world. And that's why actually, I get excited about meat production here, because it is uh, way more sustainable than production elsewhere. But we've got to tell that story, Steve, and that's the point you make and you make well. What about the tax on sugar and salt? Now, unless this is going to be an enormous tax, is that going to have any effect on consumption? I'm not a fiscal expert in this area. Um, I think there must be a better way. What we do know is people need to eat more fruit and veg, okay? So forget sugar, salt, meat, etc. We know people need to eat more fruit and veg. We in this country, and particularly up in, in Lincolnshire, you know, we've got a great climate, we've got great soils, we could produce more fruit and veg. I see that as an opportunity. So what I'd actually like to see is what are the positive uh, incentives we could put in place to grow more fruit and veg, to consume more fruit and veg, and we really should be doing more of that going forward. Okay, now I want to touch briefly on a couple of the recommendations from the report, starting with number eight. Guarantee the budget for agricultural payments until at least 2029 to help farmers transition from BPS to more sustainable land use. That sounds interesting. Yeah, this is a a very positive recommendation. Henry recognises that farming businesses and food production is not something you can turn on and off overnight. We need long-term stability in terms of the budget. At the moment, we have a a guarantee till the end of this parliament. It's great to see Henry highlighting the importance of that being a much longer-term commitment than just one parliament. And recommendation number 10, define minimum standards for trade and a mechanism for protecting them. Now, you and I have talked about trade standards ad infinitum over the last year and a bit. Do we think we're making a bit of progress here? I think it's really important that Henry's flagged it up and recognised it. Um, We've still not got government response to the Trade and Agriculture Commission. We do need to see that. We've heard lots of words around it. We've got to start to see some real concrete proposals and responses to what will be that permanent Trade and Agriculture Commission and how it will start to um, define those minimum standards, protect us from what we know is a, is a possibility, which is the undermining of our standards, something that uh, no farmer in the country could ever sign up to. Stuart, once again, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Steve. Interesting stuff. And of course, it is a report at this stage, not yet government policy. And we'll get Sean Sparling to give us a farmer's view on Dimbleby in a couple of weeks. And we have a little more from Stuart to finish the programme. First to the markets we go now with Openfield. How have things been this week? Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. The wheat market now has its own story with both quantity and quality issues in the US, Canada, France, Germany, Russia and Kazakhstan, all of whom are global exporters of either wheat or wheat flour. Some rain is falling in Canada, but it is seen as too little too late, whilst US spring wheat crop conditions posted their second lowest ever score this week. France and Germany are battling heavy rains with catastrophic floods, which have also raised water levels on the Rhine, affecting logistics. Russian production is being lowered as early cuts are lower than last year, with some also questioning last year's crop number altogether. Kazakhstan is putting limits on feed grains to preserve the stock for their livestock, as the hot dry weather lowers their production prospects. Meanwhile, the maize market continues to argue for higher prices as analysts are now starting to doubt the USDA's record yield mantra. More frosts across southern Brazil have some analysts dropping their crop number to 18 million metric tonnes, 
whereas the USDA stands at 93, with reports of large volumes of Argentine maize being sold to Brazil at prices way above the export price equivalent. This reduces the amount of Argentine maize available to other destinations and places further emphasis on the US to make up the shortfall. Any increase in the feed availability will displace maize as it is cheaper, but also by definition reduces the amount of milling wheat, which will impact prices on the global market. China continues to import record amounts of cereals against existing commitments, but apart from purchasing the US wheat last week, they have been very absent from the market, particularly for maize, which has per chance coincided with the stories of Beijing having bumper crops. Even this week's floods of biblical proportions have reportedly only affected the cities, missing all rural areas. Expect volatility to continue in the near term, but longer term, prospects of higher wheat prices do remain positive. Moving on to barley this week, winter barley harvest underway with mixed results from the early yields across the country. Localised hailstorms along with heavy rain showers have halted progress in parts, and whilst this has made way for better weather later in the week, the forecasts suggest weather coming in over the weekend. Domestic markets have been quiet, with consumers digesting the harvest information for both the UK and Northern Europe, with keen interest in the spring barley harvest underway in France, having been delayed by weather and, of course, flooding in parts of Belgium and Germany. Domestic values have seen little support with the increase in feed barley markets. However, with no confirmed trade, then ideas are nominal at this stage. The UK remains a good couple of weeks away from spring barley harvest, so the markets will evolve basis winter barley and harvest along with the European quality. Oilseed rape, a volatile week again. Further chat about biofuel blending mandates with the US followed up by a number of senators specifically looking to ditch ethanol blending requirements altogether, knocked confidence in the complex again. This, coupled with the news that OPEC Plus have finally reached an agreement on crude oil production, adding 400,000 barrels a day from August and increasing the same each month to the end of the year, giving a total increase of 2 million barrels a day, weighed on sentiment. Weather remains concern, with Canadian crops being reduced also across commodities and France and South America have been affected by weather. China has seen flash flooding, which has been described as the worst in 1,000 years. Closer to home, there have been one or two parcels of rapeseed harvested, with the bulk appearing hopefully next week, dependent on weather over the weekend. Before harvest starts in earnest, Matif futures have seen nearly a €30 Euro drop in values this week. The crush values also seem keen to follow, with reduced values accordingly, depending on the amount of rapeseed that we see. So moving on to prices this week, feed wheat for July is 188 to 192 for August 166 to 170 November 172 to 174, February 175 to 177, and May 178 to 180. Milling wheat premiums are currently 18 to 20 pounds. Feed barley values for July 144 to 146, remaining the same in August, November 151 to 153, February 154 to 156, and May 157 to 159. Malting premiums are circa 20 to 25 pounds for a 185 nitrogen. Oilseed rate, July, August, 430 to 435. November, 440 to 443. February, 443 to 446. And May, 446 to 450. Thank you very much, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Cooler than recently, with a little rain likely this week. A light northerly for Sunday, plenty of cloud and some light rain today, highs of around 18 Celsius. The wind stays light tomorrow, moving more from the west. Rain expected through the day and warmer with highs of 23. 
Much the same, but a couple of degrees cooler on Tuesday. And from the middle of the week, the wind picks up into the mid-teens MPH and more southwesterly. Light rain for the second half of the week, with a mix of sunshine and cloud and highs around 20. Well, that's nearly all for this week. The Week in Agriculture returns at 7 next Sunday morning, or whenever you want, online and on the podcast. Last week was Farm Safety Week and much has been made of the poor safety record in farming. I have a poem to finish that might just hammer the message home. It's read by Stuart Roberts, written by Don Merrill. See you next week. I could have saved a life today, but I chose to look the other way. It wasn't that I didn't care. I had the time and I was there. But I didn't want to seem a fool or argue over a safety rule. I knew he'd done the job before. If I called it wrong, he might get sore. The chances didn't seem that bad. I've done the same. He knew I had. So I shook my head and walked on by. He knew the risks as well as I. He took the chance, I closed an eye. And with that act, I let him die. I could have saved a life today, but I chose to look the other way. Now, every time I see his wife, I know I should have saved his life. That guilt is something I must bear, but it isn't something you need to share. If you see a risk that others take, that puts their health or life at stake. The question asked or thing you say could help them live another day. If you see a risk and walk away, then hope you never have to say, I could have saved a life today, but I chose to look the other way.